Hi, welcome to today's Muse Tech interview. I'm Jenna Stepp, and today I'm talking to Chris Michaels, Digital Director at the National Gallery in London. Welcome, Chris, and thanks again for taking the time to talk to me today. Well, thanks for having me. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be here. Great. So you're currently the Digital, digital Director at the National Gallery in London, um, and you previously served as Head of Digital and Publishing at the British Museum. But you have a background that includes educational app development and book publishing. Can you give us a brief overview of your background and how that led you to working in museums? Yeah, well, uh, as with many of the, the things that matter most in life, it was something that didn't really happen with a plan. Uh, I finished my PhD back in 2004 and uh, decided back then that I didn't want to be an academic. Uh, and so I started, I got a job uh, fairly accidentally in a, a digital agency that a friend of mine ran. And from there, really, it became the beginnings of a career that's taken me through, really, in a lot of ways, a lot of industries that have started to change as digital has changed them. Uh, I worked in an uh, advertising agency for a while, uh, just as you know, Facebook and Spotify were launching. And, and back then, we could feel that something was changing, but we didn't quite know what it was. Uh, then I worked in a book publishing company, just as uh, uh, you know, the Kindle uh, and digital publishing as it's, it's come to change, book publishing was around and, and we could see very fast how it was really starting to change, how readers read and how publishers could publish. Then I went to a TV company just as the iPad had launched and you know, you could see how things like Netflix were and, and as they have done now, changed, we're going to change TV forever. Uh, and you know, then I ended up working in a startup that wanted to change how education works. And through all of those things, really, I've seen, I've seen this story of how change comes to uh, different industries. And then really, just as I was leaving the startup I, I ran, uh, this opportunity to work at the British Museum came about. And I walked around the, the BM and you know, looked at the things there and looked at what people were doing. And you could feel very much that change was very potent and possible in the museum sector. And so it just seemed like an amazing opportunity to go and work in an area I, I never could have thought of that you could do digital in uh, and to see what, uh, what change digital could bring. That's really exciting. And, and yeah, it completely makes sense that as digital permeated all sectors of society, um, museums are completely rich opportunities for that. And, and one thing about your work at the British Museum is that it was very much tied to the mission of the museum, the original mission you've talked about uh, to make its global collection and stories accessible to global audiences and that online and digital properties finally had the potential to, to deliver that. So what were some of your yeah. principles outlined in your strategy, your digital strategy there, and how was technology envisioned to be in service of users? Well, the, the British Museum is an institution uh, under the directorship of Neil McGregor, who's kind of one of the great, uh, one of the great museum directors, was intensely driven by vision. Uh, Neil always talked about this idea of the, the museum being a, a museum of and for the world. And when, and, and that notion, when I came to think about what a digital strategy for the museum could mean, that that museum vision uh, was really the right place to start. So. If Neil talked about this being a museum for everyone and, and being for the whole world, then we could think about the role of digital within that as being about an expansion of, in, in some ways, the, the scope of possibility of that vision. You know, if, you're, if you run a museum, you can only fit so many million people in it per year. But if you run a museum that also embraces digital very strongly, the whole world becomes your audience. 
and we could look coherently there to a future where, you know, in 10, 20, 30 years' time, when the whole world gets access to the internet, where the whole world could get access to the things that the British Museum tells the world about the history of the whole world. And that seemed like a very, you know, potent anchoring point to then think about the roles of uh, different types of technology within that. And whether that's social media, whether that's mobile, whether that's things like the roles of data and, and, and analytics in that, it became a way to anchor all of the work that we thought about and ultimately understand its purpose, which, as I said, was to give the whole world access to the remarkable history of human endeavor that the British Museum collection holds. Yeah, a lot of the projects that you, you worked there really delivered on that mission. Um, so Museum of the World with Google, you even put the British Museum in Minecraft, which certainly brought it to new audiences, uh, and the Museum of the Citizen Project. So once you had established your strategy, how did you prioritize the projects that you did? Did you have an established roadmap that you were working with? Uh, I mean, my, my way of thinking about how digital works in museums is that in a way, you've got to try and do two things at once, and that those two things might be mutually incompatible. So there's a kind of uh, strategic process of trying to do two different things at the same time. On one side, you know, a very core part of what museum digital means, means kind of changing the technology base that you work with, evolving new core products and services, things like websites, audio guides, digital signage, you know, core membership systems, ticketing systems, core things that the museum works and lives with every day. The second part really has to be about, uh, in a way, high-profile, very public uh, demonstrations of the meaning of that museum in digital context that they've never been in before. So exactly the projects you, you talk about, Jenna, you know, putting a museum in Minecraft, uh, doing projects with Google that tell the story of the whole world in, you know, uh, uh, a kind of uh, new type of interface. To me, you have to do both of those things at once. Uh, and both of those things, as I said, are very complex in their own right, require different, you know, different kind of balances of stakeholder management and, and all the process you have to do around it. So whilst you want, you know, good digital discipline and it says that you want to live with a really well-developed roadmap, Sometimes you're going to have to just try and live with doing two complicated things at once uh, and make them work because museums are very unique in that they have to be both intensely public institutions uh, that do intensely public things whilst also being operations that you know change and evolve a com in a complex way behind the scenes. And I don't think you can do digital well without doing both of those things at the same time. That completely makes sense. There's a lot of foundational work that you have to do to establish, um, to be able to run those faster moving projects as well and those more public facing work. So how did you get stakeholders at the British Museum to sign off on more experimental and innovation projects, knowing that there can sometimes be a risk and things don't necessarily go according to plan? Um, yeah. And those are fairly large projects. How did you partner with leadership to commit to investing in so many projects? Well, I mean, really, that, that, those words, partner with leadership, is the right way to think about it. You know, I so said everything we do responded to a director's vision for what the institution is, and that meant that we could make sense of doing projects like that. You know, putting a museum in Minecraft is kind of a ridiculous thing to do in its own way, uh, because it was a direct response to things that uh, our director and our leaders believed the museum was for. And I think that, for me, makes that, that kind of strategic decision-making process much easier, which is if you can tie a project right back to why the institution exists, even in the first place, you know, 250 years ago, then people will understand why you want to do it. 
if you're doing something that's kind of you know a complete outlier that's not connected directly to to what a museum means, it can be a difficult thing for a, uh, a leadership group to want to do. But if the story that they want to tell about the institution is the story that you then retell in another medium, that's much easier for people to kind of get uh, and to want to invest that you know that work, that time, and you know that kind of uh, human cost that comes with doing projects like that. So when you're now starting at the, the National Gallery, how are you approaching the, the digital strategy there with the British Museum? Their strategy was, or their original mission was well articulated to line up with that strategy. So what was in place when you started at your job there and how has it been bringing stakeholders onto your vision? Right here it's a, it's a parallel but slightly different situation in that the, the whole institution of the National Gallery is going through a period of intense evolution. Uh, new director started a couple of years ago, Gabrielli, uh, and we're an institution in a time of change. And that change means, uh, you know, being much more ambitious in our public programming, thinking about the roles of new buildings, how we work with other galleries around the country, and really a reaffirmation of the role of a, a national gallery that's now nearly 200 years old. The work I want to do with digital here is all about building coherently as part of a wider strategy. If you like at the BM, we were responding to a, a director's vision, but it was a kind of standalone program, a little bit separated off from wider museum strategy. Here, everything we're doing is embedded in a, a wider strategy for what the museum is trying to do as it changes towards its 200th anniversary in 2024. And that means you know, thinking slightly differently about that. So it's less here about vision for the meaning of the institution and more about how we can craft um, value propositions that look at very specific areas and reshape how the museum works uh, based on that sense of potential value both for us and for our audiences. Um, there's, there's no kind of perfect map of how you create a digital strategy anywhere. But in an institution which is, as I said, going on a, a much wider strategic journey for its own future, embedding digital right into the heart of that process of strategic change seemed like a very um, uh, exciting thing for me to do. That, that sounds great. And starting with a value proposition that both works for your audiences and for the institution as well sounds like a strong place to, to anchor your work from. So how is digital um, defined within the National Gallery then now that it's, it really is foundational to so many different teams and all teams will touch it in some way? You know, there's been a more of a traditional approach of putting digital in a separate team, but I feel like more and more institutions and, and companies really are moving digital uh, in parallel across the organization. What does your team look like there, and, and which teams are you partnering with? Well, so I mean, I uh, I'm lucky in that I've been put into a position on the the executive group here. So I run I've been part of my job is to create a digital department, which I've done over the last couple of months, uh, and also then to run the communications department here. And communications uh, means marketing, means PR, social media, our membership group, ticketing. And a lot of, in the way, uh, the, the nearest at hand parts of what museums need to think about when they think about digital uh, sit with me now, not just uh, not just in a kind of parallel department, but as part of a department that I oversee. Uh, I have, in the last couple of months, created a digital department here because, while ultimately you want your digital skills to be embedded across the organisation, there are some types of skill and discipline that you need that just aren't going to be able to fit anywhere. They need to fit in a specific specific digital team. So skills like uh, product management, user experience design, 
uh, user experience research, things that are very, very core to how you make great digital products and services need to sit with digital people in the digital space. And so I've built a team, a small team here to, to focus on that. I said, whilst working with the wider organization on a, on a program of change that, as you say, affects everybody. That's really exciting. So you have product managers and UX and design immediately within the uh, museum institution itself, or are you partnering with other, with other companies or agencies? Directly within the institution. I mean, when I, when I first started at the, the BM, you know, nearly four years ago now, there were some digital skills that for me as someone coming in from outside, I just didn't see in the institution. And skills like product management, skills like UX design, skills like user research, data analysis, these are 100% the things that successful digital companies, whether they're you know, Google and Facebook or startups or you know, increasingly traditional companies who are going through their own transformation processes, those types of skill are the ones that make great digital stuff. And frankly, they weren't in uh, the museum sector when I joined. And so uh, creating and starting the process of getting those skills in and working how they sit in a museum environment has been a, you know, it's been a critical part for me. Um, some work really easily. You know, user research is a kind of discipline which fits very comfortably into a museum environment. Product management, for, for many people who've tried to do it, is a difficult thing to integrate into how museums work. But I think you, again, I don't believe you'll ever make brilliant digital products until you have people doing the right kind of digital disciplines that go around having those great products. Yeah, that's, that's really great. And it's, it's true that people didn't have that digital skill set necessarily offhand before. And as it becomes more and more common, uh, people are trying to move out of agency world and specialist companies and getting closer to the institutions they care about and believe in. So I'm sure there are uh, people who are thrilled to be working at the museum and then you can have a dedicated, more agile team to work on projects as well. Absolutely. I mean, exactly that. You know, you, uh, you're also in a world where, as you say, digital skills go through virtually any organization now, but also, you know, great training programs, you know, brilliant training companies like General Assembly and others like that who are specifically devoted to helping skill up organizations, whoever they are. And that means it's easier now, I would say, for museums and institutions to become digital organizations because the, the saturation of those skill sets through the wider sector is much higher than even than three or four years ago. Absolutely. Uh, maybe let's talk about something that's maybe not so commonly widespread of a skill, um, which are immersive realities and virtual reality. Um, you've mm -hmm. spoken a lot about VR, and you've done a lot of VR projects with the British Museum. Um, and you've talked about the power of it to put abstracted objects in a museum back into their context to help people understand it um, and understand the world that they came from. Can you talk a little bit about the VR Bronze, Bronze Age Roundhouse experience at the British Museum? Um, what was the target audience for that, and how was VR landed on as the appropriate technology for it? Well, I mean, to put it in context, I mean, as, as I think about what I think is a very exciting opportunity around VR, uh, it kind of goes back to a question about how museums work. You know, we, I was at a conference in Jerusalem last week, and a curator asked me, you know, is there not a risk that we lose the meaning of the objects with the things that we do in digital? And, I, and my response was really, well, by putting things in museums in the first place, we took them away from their original context and expected them exactly. to still hold their meaning. And, you know, that's whether you've got an archaeological object, you know, an artwork from a Renaissance chapel, whatever it is, it was created somewhere else and put in a, a physical space. 
And one of the things we get to do with virtual reality is to think about how we bring objects back to the spaces where they came from originally. And the piece of work we did with the Bronze Age uh, uh, thing at the, the, the British Museum was a very simple demonstration of what that could mean, which is that you know, the Bronze Age is a period of time that people, teachers and children particularly, and, and this responded to a particular problem in the British educational system, find very hard to grasp because you don't see it anymore. There aren't great monuments left behind. You know, there aren't you know, ancient houses to live in or temples or, or whatever it is. Mostly there are bits of rock found in the mud. And uh, you know, so it's hard for people to conceive what ancient life was like in that period of time. And so, creating a very simple VR experience that created, recreated what uh, you know the place people lived in the Bronze Age looked like, and then putting some virtual objects in it for people to play with was a simple way of responding to that need. And again, it came for that. We worked uh, in a context around teachers and children. Uh, we did that because we had a brilliant partnership with Samsung at the, the BM, um, who for you know, nearly a decade now worked with the BM around this, uh, this thing called Digital Discovery Center. And that center has been an incredible place where digital experiences based around museum content have been anchored for thousands and thousands of children around the country. And this was a chance to bring VR into that space and, and help children and their teachers experience the Bronze Age as a lived uh, thing. Very, very simple piece of work, you know, not kind of very sophisticated, not, not intended for a long-run piece, but, uh, you know, as an alpha project that just tried to show what this can mean. I thought it was a very powerful thing. I agree. It's definitely really powerful. And I, I just tried out also uh, the two million years of history and humanity on the Oculus um, and really enjoyed that. But that one obviously is available in the Oculus store. Anybody can download it if they, given they have an Oculus and they can try it at home. So what went into the decision to make this one available outside of the context of the museum and opening it beyond just the museum doors? Well, I mean, really, for VR to prosper in what it means to museums, uh, it's got to be an extra museum experience. It seems a bit weird to me, generally, to have people come into museums where real objects are, you know, 100 foot away, uh, and then put on headsets when they're there. I don't, I don't yeah. kind of get that as a thing to do, but I do get the idea that we can offer new experiences to audiences all across the world in new types of medium. And so working with uh, Boulevard, the, the brilliant company who made that with us, um, it was a chance to create a different type of uh, virtual exhibition experience. So, you know, they took a selection of objects from the museum, we created new content around them, and then put them into this kind of virtual recreation of the museum's reading room. And what, to me, was really, really important about that was in that virtual reality experience, you got a chance to do really in real life what only curators get a chance to do, which is that you got to kind of hold the objects in your yeah. virtual hands, and that's the kind of uh, kind of virtual experience that we should be able to think about things that aren't really possible in real life that become possible through amazing technology like VR. You know, to be able to hold you know uh, a two million year old hand axe, uh, hand axe in your hands whatever that thing is, I think that's a very potent thing and kind of qualifies why VR can be an important technology for this sector. Absolutely, yeah, and that is the exciting part of it, of being able to pick it up and not be sweating, worrying about dropping it in the process as well yeah. and being able to look at it. Um, and VR has also been spoken about as an ultimate empathy machine for storytelling. Um, what do you think about VR and the process, or the, the chances to tell stories, not just looking at objects, but telling an actual story? 
So I, I, I look forward to the point where we get to be able to, be able to do that well and properly. You know, we're very much at the start of that. Uh, uh, one of the demonstrations I think we've done over here at the National Gallery that worked beautifully well was uh, a virtual reality exhibition we created with um, uh, Facebook this summer around Vincent van Gogh's sunflowers. And you know, working with them, we created and with uh, other institutions around the world, we brought all of that van Gogh's sunflower paintings into one virtual reality room. That in itself is a fairly kind of straightforward thing to do, but it came alive because the the narrative that we put around that was a story told by uh, Vincent van Gogh's nephew Theo van Gogh. Now he has a uniquely personal story to tell around that, which is that. You know, he, when he was a child, sat in a dining room at his grandparents' house where one of those pictures hung over the dining room table. And by humanizing the story of these, you know, these artworks that every, basically every person in the world knows what they look like, it kind of gave, uh, gave a very personal narrative meaning to a technology experience that otherwise can be quite kind of cold and distant still. You know, we've got a lot to learn if we want to become good digital storytellers in this space. I don't think you know really the world at large has cracked how to do this yet, and, and certainly museums haven't done. But I think if you look at good examples of how you can do it, it's about responding to what virtual reality does really well. You know, a, a, a friend of mine, Julian Ferry, uh, ran um, VR at the Cirque du Soleil, and what they did as they thought about um, uh, virtual reality experiences was to really think about you know, how they do storytelling creation and bring it into that space for the first time. So how do you build worlds? How do you build character? How do you take people on a narrative journey? And critically, how do you also give them freedom to break out of that narrative journey? Because VR isn't a linear experience. So there's rich, rich opportunity here. But it's one that we've got to do work through in, in, uh, in kind of logical steps, thinking about you know, what our audience wants at every point and gradually understanding for ourselves how real great storytelling can happen in that space. Yeah, I think you hit on an important point there with it's about user choice. Um, and once you are in virtual reality and you're put into that first person uh, position in it, you do feel like you naturally want to make a choice about what you yeah. can do next. And yeah, what you can do with that after is a little bit different. It made me think about, um, have you seen the United Nations pieces where they've done the films uh, that put you into different areas of conflict? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that one of those things with that is that you do feel it, but you don't necessarily know how you can can break from that narrative um, and move with it. But you think that that's something that could be applicable for museum audiences in the future? Uh, well, definitely. I'm going to say, if you just take that notion that we tried with the Bronze Age piece of, you know, recreating a historic environment and how the things that you use inside it, you know, naturally the next stage is to think about. Uh, you know, the kind of narrative experience that helps shape the meaning of that. When I, mean, I was thinking about that the other day, thinking about a, a radio program that's just launched in the UK called Living with the Gods, uh, created by with the British Museum and my, my old boss there, Neil McGregor. You know, it tells a story at the start about the oldest religious object in the world, you know, the 50,000 years old kind of half man, half lion carving created somewhere in the forests of southern Germany. You know, in a in very complex environment, someone spent 400 hours crafting this thing. When you know, real saber-toothed tigers and you know, whatever the you know the kind of complexities of life 50,000 years ago were going. And if you could, you would understand the, the potency of that object better. 
you had some emotional sense of the, the context in which it was made. And so, you know, there are, again, there's such rich opportunity in this space to try and give that potency of objects back to people in ways that can become, you know, inevitably very hard to do in a, a traditional museum context. Yeah, well, excited to see what you continue to do with uh, the National Gallery. Um, moving on to a different topic, more about data, uh, which is something that you've touched on a little bit. But as museums are able to access and gather more data about their audiences through their behavior on their sites or apps or different products, uh, do you think there's potential to begin segmenting audiences based on interests and behaviors? And what opportunities do you think about uh, museums to explore data-driven insights and the types of work that they decide to offer to their audiences? Well, from the, the minute I first walked into the BM, you know, four years ago now, the thing that I was most excited about really wasn't about experience change because the act of standing and looking at objects is a kind of uniquely powerful experience even without any kind of digital there. But the opportunity to learn from the data that human beings create in and around those spaces and to do things that responded to the things you learn with that data struck me as the most important thing that museums could do in a digital world. You know, and that's really what I'm dedicated to probably more than anything else. And so at the BM, I've created a data and analytics team there uh, that want that try to bring together data sources and generate insight from them. I've done exactly the same here where we're going to be creating a data and insight team uh, when everyone comes into place this month to take, as I said, multiple museum data sets, build insight from them, and do something with that insight. It also comes about then you know, dialogue with real human beings uh, and how you use skills like user experience research to talk with your audience and work with them on the things you make. And that's not just the thing for ultimately for you know, how you make museum apps or whatever you're doing with your digital products. It's a thing for the whole museum of how you kind of get the voice of the audience into the things you do. And then, of course, absolutely, projects like segmentation are a natural piece of that. You know, the National Gallery is in a very strong place and we have a very strong and well-defined segmentation model built out of real audience data and the things that we know about our audience. And we use that you know, increasingly all over the organization to help us think about the things that we do. And it's incredibly important that we keep building on that and kind of keep, keep it alive and keep it growing to help us become a better museum for the future. And what do you think about the potential to know audiences down to a unique ID? So if we can track somebody across their mobile device to what they're doing online to potentially if they were in gallery and they looked at something on the site uh, on their phone while they're do you see personalization of content playing a part in museum collections? I, I think there's a role for personalization. And you know, it's the dream, it's the natural dream of many museum marketing people to get to that kind of personalized right. experience. Uh, uh, I understand why they want to do it, but I, I will say that I, the thing I'd say about it is personalization is only meaningful if you can keep offering better value back to your audience by the fact that you know an awful lot about them as human beings. And you know, we have to make sure that that value offer that we create for our audience is good enough for that personalized experience to be worth having. It's, it's all very well knowing someone uh, and what they do with you. You know, and with you. I was very lucky when I made apps for a living. Every person who knew my app, I could see every single thing they did individually. And that helped us try and make better apps for people as we went along. Um, but if you're going to do that for a museum, you've got to respond to the things that people do to make it worthwhile. I'd say generally a lot of the time, less worry less about individuals and worry more about cohorts of different sizes of groups. You know, what do 
uh, American tourists do in your museum if you're a British uh, museum? What do different types of audience behavior look like? And look at the behavior of thousands of people rather than individuals, because those thousands of people kind of acting in similar ways will tell you more often than the behavior of an individual. And you can respond to what thousands of people need more easily than you can respond to what a single individual needs. Yeah, it's a fair point. And uh, the, the, the promise of personalization and getting people to willingly agree to give up with their data points and let people track what they're doing really does need to be fulfilled um, with appropriate and interesting content for that. And there would be a challenge to create a full content strategy to deliver the next steps and uh, keep providing better information, as you said, to people. Um, yeah. What, what do you think about seamlessly allowing visitors to extend their visit? What do you think the role of digital can be for people who come visit the gallery but may want to pick up where they left off when they, when they leave the gallery and they're back at home on their own devices? Well, I mean, I think that, I think it comes down to a, a larger and more complex question about what digitization really means. For a lot of the last 20 years, digitization has meant broadly uh, taking photos of objects, uh, creating metadata about them, and putting it on the internet. Now, that's an incredibly important thing that we've done as a sector, but it isn't really creating a context in which the, the use case you describe makes sense. I don't think we're the best one in the world. Very many people in the world go home and search through museum databases as a way to extend their experience. You know, it right. comes back to um, you know types of medium and types of storytelling that you create. And so whilst you know, that, uh, that digitization essentially is incredibly important for some audiences, particularly academic researchers, you know, actually it's more about you know, great social media video storytelling that you do rather than I said, and how you create ongoing narratives rather than thinking there's a kind of parity between a, a digital experience searching through a database and a physical experience walking through a gallery. I'm not, I'm not, I've never been convinced they're really truly the same thing. Right, so not literally carrying on the visit onto like a museum website, but carrying on the dialogue necessary or more like and uh, conversations it's on social building media. Building a relationship, and I said, as soon as you flip from one, one kind of from physical reality to digital reality, in digital reality you're talking about different types of media. You know, video does narrative much better than web pages do. So how can you create video-based storytelling that's really potent, really meaningful? And that's again, it's not, uh, it's not a continuation of the museum experience. It's more of a, a building of your relationship with those audiences. I think that's a really strong way to end this with an ongoing museum relationship between its audiences. Um, well, that's actually all the questions I have right now. Is there anything else you wanted to cover off while we're talking on Use Tech? Um, not really. I mean, I just think, you know, this for me is a very exciting time for Museum Digital. Museum Digital has been a, you know, a complex story full of both kind of brilliant victories and, you know, some, some fairly painful moments that every institution goes through. But, um, you know, this time now where whether it's mobile and social media on one side, you know, the opportunity of data, VR and all the things to come, you know, this is, this is the chance we have now to kind of do this brilliantly and do it well. And there's, you know, great people in the sector, lots of goodwill to do it. So, um, you know, I'm excited about the years ahead. Thanks very much, Chris. I really appreciate you talking today. Thank you. I said, pleasure to be here, and uh, good luck with the, with the podcast. Thank you very much.